0: <laughs> yeah, I'm done with my Oreo. Okay, good. Um, you do you really, really know what happened? Yeah. The brother did. The brother. That's what I thought too. Yeah. I mean, that seems like kind of obvious. Hey, do you want to talk weird. about death? Yeah, this this is
1: mean, I mean, I. The murder-y thingy
0: thingy. thingy. <laughs> 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 hey. Happy Wednesday. Happy Wednesday, Wednesday. Two weeks after the Wednesday that we last talked to you. Go team.
1: Oh uh, welcome to Mystery Murdery welcome Thingy to Mystery as well. Murdery Thingy, my name is Chloe. My name
0: is Mario.
1: And
0: welcome to the podcasting closet.
1: Yes, yes, that is correct.
0: Um,
1: uh, we're here to talk about mysteries
0: and lots of fucking murder. Jesus Christ.
1: And thingies. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mine's very murdery. Yours is very murdery very. this week. Yes, I've got a be, uh, yes, good one.
0: We're both going to be yes, good ones, kind of crazy ones. So I will start as we talked about earlier yeah.
1: Mario's on the second part of his two-parter and I'm Correct. on the first part of my two-parter
0: <laughs> we've always got it like it seems like at least one two-parter going right I know. I know it's funny so yes I am continuing the theme from last week um taking you know y'all through some um uh, murder in Alaska and this is one that's widely considered the worst mass murderer in the history of Alaska at least in modern times right oh, wow. um There was a, so it's, this all kind of happens in this small fishing town called Craig, Alaska, um, which is situated in um, sort of the Southern archipelago of of Alaska, right? Between Seattle to the South and Anchorage to the North, sort of along the side of British Columbia, right? Just so you're kind of, that's where we're talking about. And this was back in the early eighties, specifically September, 1982, just at the end of the fishing season, like the last day. And, um, you know, Craig, Alaska, it's, like I said, a little kind of fishing village. Um, and it's one of those places, um, you've probably been to these places, like, off-season and on-season, right? It's, like, totally different. So when the fishing season is there, you know, it's there's just, a lot like, of people. Lots of people. When it's not the, se- the season, there's, like, 500 permanent residents. And it's also one of those places you can, like, only get there by, like, plane or boat. Mm. You know, it's, like, one of those as well. Um, so yeah, normally they have like one state trooper, like a few cops, you know, that's it. Um, you know, little police department, you know, three bars, of course, um, a restaurant, you know, a church. It's like a little, little tiny town. Um, but you know, during the fishing season, they sometimes have their hands pretty full. Uh, the cops do with a lot of drunks, rowdy people, fishermen, getting in lots of fights. Apparently, there's, like, nothing else to do except to get real drunk. So, yeah, it makes sense, right? And on September 5th of 1982, um, the fisherman Mark Colthurst and his family were enjoying a dinner at the uh, local mainstay restaurant, Ruth Ann's, which, unfortunately, burnt, actually burned down in 2015, but um, for decades, was, like, the restaurant, right, in Craig. And it was uh, not only the end of the fishing season, right? A very strenuous, you know, months-long fishing season that they had been on that they were <coughs> celebrating the end of. It was also Mark's 28th birthday. And then, tragically, this would be the last time that he, his family, and four of the remaining crew members would be seen alive. Mm. Mark and his wife Irene had been high school sweethearts, uh, been together since they were teenagers. Um, and she was there supporting him, like, all the way along his uh sort of rise in the fishing world. And and he was kind of an up-and-comer, right? Um his rise had not been without struggle, of course. He'd had, you know, failures and and he had to work real fucking hard. Um but it seemed that he and his, you know, little burgeoning family were finally on the precipice of that real, you know, that real success that he wanted. Mm. Um he had recently bought a modern um, you know kitted out $750,000 fishing vessel uh, vessel wow. and uh, called it the uh, investor um, okay. mark Makes had it, and and yeah and he was very explicit about it he's like i'm calling it investor because this
1: is, th- the, this is
0: my one a big step on my way but this isn't the end you know this is an investment and um, He uh, had also become a little bit of a minor celebrity in the fishing world. Um, He had even been featured in a magazine earlier in the year in 1982 as an up-and-coming young, you know, um, fishing, you know, whatever. I don't don't know fishing terms, so I'm Uh, sorry. whatever. (laughs) Whatever. Real good fishing guy. Um, And he famously vowed to retire by age 50. That was, like, his big thing. Like, I'm just going to work, and then I'm just going to be retired and living off my wealth by the time I'm 50 didn't end up coming to pass, of course, um, um, tragically. Um, and the season of 1982 seemed to have been a pretty successful one for for Mark. Like I said, he had been uh, they had been con- continuously fishing for like five months, I think. And the way the, the the boat was set up, they could do different types of fishing, right? They went and, and fished for like herring, and then they did like Dungeness crab, and they'd like done all this stuff, and they were finally at the end. But you know the success, right? Monetarily hadn't quite come in yet. Um, Mark was heavily in debt. You know he had a lot of outlays that you know the fishing was going to cover, but he hadn't quite gotten the money yet. Um, he was a bit cash poor, one might say. Okay. Reportedly, so- he even had to borrow a hundred dollars from a friend just to afford the meal and the drinks for for his birthday dinner that
1: night. He was kind of waiting on. Profit sounds like? Yeah, at the you moment. know, the
0: way it is, you, you catch the fish and then you have to sell them, right? It's, it's a process. It takes time. Yeah. But there was money coming in. And according to a waitress at Ruth Ann's, um, the night was also marred by an unknown individual who arrived toward the end of the night, argued with Mark, and then kind of left in a huff. And uh, like much about this case, the identity of that person and what they and Mark talked about are. Completely unknown, and this is really only coming from that waitress. So really, it, I mean, other people substantiate that some, someone else was there too, but it's not clear exactly what happened. In any case, Mark, Irene, their two kids, young kids, and four remaining crew members left uh, the restaurant and returned to the investor about 9:30 p.m. Much of what happened over the next two days is again hazy, but at some point. All of the eight people who boarded the Investor that night were killed. Okay. Oh, God. According to some eyewitnesses, the killer was seen to clamber onto the ship uh, late on the night of the 5th.
1: Oh, so they actually saw somebody? Like
0: Many people saw many things, and okay. we'll get into that. Okay. And it's, it's all highly contested. Um, sometime later, people also reported hearing gunshots. Um, but again other people reported hearing gunshots like the next day that none of it is totally clear. One witness describes hearing a blood curdling scream from a woman and later seeing a shadowy figure debark the investor and walk down the dock. We'll, We'll get back to that later. The next morning in broad daylight, again, many people saw many things. The killer took the investor from the dock and while he was moving it about a mile north to this cove, he actually waved at a passing ship captain. Which is pretty crazy. Like with eight dead bodies on the ship, he was like moving it from the dock, right? And while he was doing that, he saw other people and actually waved at them.
1: So he's got some balls.
0: It's pretty crazy. It it, it kind of goes to, to um profiling, right? It's what what kind of person is that, right? Um, so anyway, they moved it to this secluded bay about a mile north, um, where it lay anchored and actually shrouded in some mist that, that was, happened to be there in mist. It sounds very <laughs> mysterious, but literally it was it was shrouded in mist. Um, the killer was seen on several other occasions as well, according to witnesses, um, who saw a man using the, the skiff um, that is the small powerboat okay. from the Investor. Um, from what authorities extrapolated, uh, extrapolated later, the killer seems to have taken the ship out to the bay, um, the the investor, and then attempted to sink it by opening these like valves um, that were down there, which implied it's that they that... knew something about the ship, but it didn't okay. work. They thought it would, but it didn't so th- it, it, it's interesting, right? They knew enough to know that what those valves were, but they didn't know enough to know that it wouldn't actually sink the ship. So anyway, it's kind of weird.
1: Okay, okay. So maybe, okay. okay. Yeah,
0: so when that wasn't successful, the killer decided to burn the ship. Um, He returned to Craig and bought gasoline from the local gas station, the one and only gas station in Craig, returned to the ship, and torched it with the eight bodies decomposing on board. On the morning of September 7th of 1982, the fog around Investor was lifting but smoke began to rise from the hull. It quickly turned from gray to black and rose miles into the sky. Um, It was seen all around, and vessels quickly started flocking to the scene, Um, first searching for survivors on the deck uh, or in the water, but, again, there was none to find. Um, When, you know, it became apparent that there there were no people around, right, they started searching for ways to put out the fire, uh, which was... Quickly engulfing this fifty-foot-long ship, the skipper of the first ship to arrive, Casino, feared that his it was so hot that he he feared his propane tanks that he had on his on board for fuel would explode if he got too All close right. to the fire. Um, later, a smaller ship came and 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 circled the ship closely to search for survivors. Um, and as the fire continued to grow, it began to melt and collapse part of the ship. Um, which was mainly so, made of um, synthetic materials. Um, oh, okay. Uh, so, f- was like fiberglass. It
1: was like really, really. It was a really, really hot fire. Or? It was an
0: extremely hot fire. Yes.
1: And do um, they know what caused it?
0: Not exactly. I mean, obviously, they did a whole arson investigation, but they, from the moment that the first officer on, you know, came onto the scene, knew that it was arson, the way that it was burning, how quickly it started and how quickly it, it kind of engulfed the ship. And it, it was clearly, um, said intentionally. So at the same time as the, you know, fire was really going right. The, um, this Alaska state trooper named Bob Anderson was on his way. He was kind of the first responding officer, um, to Craig from the nearby town of Klawak. Um, to investigate the ship fire, and his first instinct was that this was a case of insurance fraud. That was what he thought first, perpetrated by you know some unsuccessful fisherman to recoup the losses from you know presumably some bad fishing season. But um, like I said, Trooper Anderson, you know once he got there, didn't have too much time to ponder that because he saw how quickly the fire was was kind of going right, and tried to figure out how the hell are we going to put this out. Um the Craig Fire Department, um, and the Forest Service were woefully unprepared for this disaster. They um had some pumps, but mostly they didn't work. Um if they did work, they didn't match the hoses that they had, so were any good. Um he then attempted to commandeer a boat to go and survey the scene himself, but that boat's battery was dead, so he couldn't go. I mean this it really it's crazy.
1: This seems like like worst case scenario like bad luck after bad luck.
0: Yeah, it's like a fucking Steve Martin movie, right? Oh, so he decides, fuck it, I'm just gonna take my personal boat, which luckily was docked right nearby. When um, Trooper Anderson got to the investor, the fire had intensified even more, engulfing, quote, the entire cabin, bridge, wheelhouse, and galley, as well as the same net on the stern, close quote. And that's the, the net that they used to catch the fish. Like, big, big okay. net that kind of juts out from the the side, and, that, and that's according to Leland Hale from the, the book that I read. Um, and he couldn't um, really do anything about this, right? The, the fire was just going too much, no one could get even get close to it. So he watched, and kind of pondered as the mast veered and eventually fell into the water. Um, it was event- at this point, it's 5.45pm and the tugboat Andy Head comes to the rescue. Um, finally, a ship with a working water pump comes and and uh, the Andy Head um, quickly puts out the fire on the same net, but the rest of it was decidedly more intractable, and was not able to be put out with one water pump.
1: What does intractable mean?
0: Uh, it means um, uh, ardent, uh, not able to be moved. Um, in this case, not able to be extinguished, right? It, it's it's uh, the Im- immovable uh, force of, of that fire, you know? Eventually, the Coast Guard airlifted pumps in um, from Ketchikan, I believe. Oh, wow. uh, From, you know, like, 50 miles away. Another tugboat, the Spruce, attempted to douse the fire by rolling the investor on its side. Uh, Bravely, the the captain of the Spruce decided he was going to, like, essentially, like, push his ship onto this burning ship to push it over so it goes into the water. Which is crazy. I mean, Jesus. But, um... They were fine. Nothing happened to them, but it it also didn't work. Um, But it did push the investor closer to the shore, and eventually when the tide came in, it actually grounded the investor. The turning point in putting out the fire was the arrival of more pumps uh, from the Coast Guard at about 7.30 p.m. These were quickly attached to Andy Head, and the fire was put out for the most part. Uh, at least enough for Trooper Anderson to start really getting close enough to investigate the scene in earnest. And what he saw was essentially a smoldering stack of fiberglass sheets that had collapsed and melted on top of one another. It was it was a mess. As much of a mess as you can possibly imagine. Um, at 8 p.m., Trooper Anderson began combing through the material by hand. And some other um, um, uh, volunteers as well with wearing heavy gloves and boots, as you can imagine. I was
1: going to say, that sounds super dangerous. It's
0: very dangerous. And, and actually the fire um, flared up again while they were on the ship. And they had to get um, uh, the, some sort of like foam, like firefighting foam uh, to re- actually finally really put it out like for good, uh, which is crazy. Um, most of the ship um you know was was just like i said this this kind of carnage wreck um eventually within that wreck they did discover tragically human remains um most of the remains was burned past the point of recognition um some some of it was not recognizably human other than the fact that it was it was apparent right, mm-hmm. and then some of the other bodies were more or less burned um you know, and you really, obviously, in a moment like that, I mean, what do you what do you say? Like, you find all of these, you eight? know, horrible... Is it eight? That's what would be established eventually. But ev- even that um, is fairly contested um, for a long time. Um, just how many bodies, you know, the burned human remains represented would actually remain a matter of controversy for many years. And become a big sticking point in um, at least the first trial, as we'll eventually get to so eventually the families of the victims would be asked to submit dental records so that they could be um identified from the teeth that were recovered from the burnt wreck of the investor so it 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 really got to that point yeah i know it just turns your stomach um after night fell in earnest uh trooper anderson called off the search for that first night and started to go home exhausted i mean Yeah. Understandably. He was interrupted, though, by a policeman telling him that they had found another eyewitness who was leaving town in the morning to go to college and had to talk to them like right then. And this was like 1230 at night when this was happening. Okay. So according to, again, Leland Hale, the witness told the investigators the following, quote, the fire had just been announced and it seemed like everyone was headed out toward the fire, except this skiff. The skiff was headed in the opposite direction toward the dock, and the guy in it seemed like he could care less about the fire. Close quote. Um, that witness also told them what the skiff operator looked like, of course, because they were very close; they were within like ten feet of each other or something. Um, and what he said was a description that would echo in a lot of other eyewitness testimony. A young what you know late teens early 20s white man with blonde or brown hair wearing a baseball cap uh blue or green sketchy. um and some people say he he did look pretty sketchy like he he looked like he you know was rather disheveled other people said the opposite again it's and you'll find this with all eyewitness testimony if you get two people to look at the same exact thing at the same exact time they're not going to give you the same description right. of it and that's that's not even what this is right um, so anyway, in in the eventual trials that would ensue, you know, over the many years uh, following this, the eyewitness testimony of uh, one Sue Dominowski would, would also become critical. She claimed to have actually spoken to the skiff operator just as he arrived from the investor at the cannery um, af- after the fire. According to Sue, he offered her the use of the skiff to go out to the fire, which struck her very oddly, as you can imagine, um, she said that he appeared to be in shock, and, and generally gave the same description. Aww. Trooper Anderson also spoke to um, Jim, a man named Jim Robinson, uh, the owner of Craig Auto, which is that one um, uh, uh, gas station in town, um, and he and uh, where, where the you know presumed killer had gotten the gasoline just to light the. The ship on fire, right? And he said he remembered the young man vaguely and did point out his blue baseball cap. Jim Robinson um, is also going to come back in pretty sensational fashion in, in the trial, we'll, we'll, as we'll get to. Um, one witness uh, description of the skipper op- operator didn't match the others, but just one. That one person described him as a native Alaskan and older, like a man in his like, middle age. Um, but otherwise, everyone pretty much said the same. The one suspect that arose from the initial investigation, and the one that the authorities would eventually come back to, was John Peel. Uh, the only real named suspect of any significance in this case. Um, he was picked out by some witnesses as matching their recollection of the skiff operator, um, and and in like photo lineups and different things. Although a lot of that is also contested and and you know not entirely clear
1: yeah we've we've had this whole eyewitness exactly conversation
0: yeah eyewitness testimony is not dispositive of anything almost any at any time um and in fact one man um fat charlie clark um who had seen the skiff operator said when police specifically asked him like pointed and said that's is that the man you saw and they were pointing to john Peel said that no he knows john peel personally okay. and that was not the skiff operator um but even that testimony would would become contested later too it's all a mess despite um the you know sort of ne- negative you know uh, identification of uh, fat Charlie, the investigators uh, decided that they liked quote unquote liked john peel for the crime right he was I the one like they were sort of honing in on
1: i don't like that word
0: yeah i know it's weird when they say like that but i like him it, i know it's it's funny Do you like me, yes or no? Um, He generally matched the description of the unsub, and he knew the investor crew. Um, He knew, like, all of them personally. Um, He had actually crewed under Mark Colthurst before, and had even dated briefly one of Mark's relatives. Um, John Peel may or may not also have been supplying cannabis to a couple of the investor crew,
1: the devil's lettuce.
0: Right. Um, after additional investigation on board the ship and medical examination, and the dental records, etc., it was determined for certain that at least seven people had died on board the investor. Wow. And the vi- the victims at that time that they were you know, clearly able to establish were Mark and Irene Colthurst, both 28, their children, Kimberly, 5, and John, 4, and their four crewmen remaining on the ship, Chris Hayman, 18, Jerome Keone, 19, and Mike Stewart, also 19. Why? And it couldn't be established whether Dean Moon, the other um, crew member's body, was present or not. There just wasn't... The the remains were too dispersed. They, they couldn't find anything that definitively told them that um Dean Moon, like, was on the ship.
1: His i'm confused his kids were on the ship
0: yeah his wife and kids were both on the ship
1: oh so they all okay yeah there were, were eight people you know do you think i mean keep going keep going yeah
0: <laughs> um so the this sort of mystery within the mystery right of whether dean moon was killed that night would would linger on for some time and um would would come to, to you know shadow the first trial at least and over the next year, much would remain mysterious as investigators fielded hundreds of calls and tips um they They tracked down these tips as far away as Indiana um you know they talked to you know almost a thousand people, but it did not yield any immediate results. They were still considering the possibility that Dean Moon could have been murdered uh or could have been the murderer sorry um but but that he had not yet surfaced right um they were still considering that to be a possibility, but um, they, you know, they really weren't sure. Investigators also fielded tips about possible a possible drug angle to the crimes, um, which was a theme that would would continue to come back in the trials. But um, but nothing was ever proven. Really, um, by March of 1984, the authorities had cycled back to their original suspect, John Peel. Um, they were never able to clearly say why he would have done it. Like ever no but there's there was never any clear motive um, but from then on the Alaskan police and prosecutors were convinced that John Peel was their man over the next several years John Peel would be indicted and tried twice each indicted twice tried twice um, from the beginning John has pers- professed his innocence And in addition to having no clear motive to kill his former boss and seven other people, he also claimed to have an alibi. He told police he was with his girlfriend the night of the murder. With little physical evidence to go on, police um, stringently attempted to get a confession, but they were unsuccessful. And eventually John asked for a lawyer. And eventually he brought in a really good defense lawyer named Philip Widener. Um, a larger-than-life figure who um, would mount a more-than-vigorous defense of John over the uh, ensuing years, trials, etc. Um, And Widener's first legal victory for John came early. The initial indictment was dismissed by the judge, but only on narrow technical grounds. Uh, Quickly, they obtained a second indictment, which stuck, and John was arrested and tried.
1: Yeah, you said judge. So was it a jury trial? It was a jury it trial. It was a jury yeah, trial. Yeah, good
0: good question. At that time, it could in Alaska it could have been a jury trial or a judge trial, but it was a jury trial. Um, I believe now because of the Supreme Court precedent, you have to have a jury trial for a murder case. But I'm not totally sure. Wonder... Widner um, mm-hmm. and prosecuting attorney Marianne Henry over the two trials that followed, would um, violently and continually battle with each other. Like, it was crazy. From their first opening statements to the close of the second trial, they would object, inveigh, question each other's integrity and intelligence and motives. And... Um, everything else and eventually they would both pay restitution for disobeying some of the innumerable orders handed down by by each of the two judges in these cases. Oh
1: wow. So it was like ooh it's really intense.
0: It was super intense. It, I it, it was just crazy and I would lo- I would truly love truly love to detail every single part of that insanity for you but I, we would be here for hours we'll talk later read leland H- leland hale's book i'm gonna go over it in my sources at the end for the full details and there are lots of them and he he does a great job of writing uh about them but i i think i can best encapsulate the way um that, that this kind of unfolded by the fact that the judge in the second trial literally went gray during the proceedings and he was only 45 and it yeah His hair turned gray during this trial, and it's not, I think, a coincidence. That's the second trial, which was shorter. The first trial went on for eight grueling months, the longest trial in Alaskan history up to that point. Dozens of witnesses for each side appeared, and hundreds of exhibits were made. Now, for all of that, there were many unresolved questions at the end uh, of, of the, you know, When they both uh, rested, the defense had described, um, sorry, the prosecution had described a motive speculating that John had been resentful of Mark's success and peeved that he had been fired by Mark, which John Peel said didn't actually happen. Um, But it was never proved. It, It was never very well defined. Like the whole notion of that's maybe was the weakest part of their case, was the fact that their motive was purely speculation, whether Dean Moon lived or not had also not been clearly established, even at that time. And this was two years later. They still didn't know if Dean Moon had died that night or not. Whether Mark Colthurst was involved in drug dealing um, was also very much contested. The the defense, um, and this was a lot of the orders the judge made to tell him like not to talk about this, and then Widener would just talk about it or find uh, other ways of bringing it up.
1: that... Legal? Can you get in trouble? You can get in trouble. Oh yeah, that,
0: right? no. He, yeah, he was. He was always getting in trouble during this trial. The the judge was constantly bringing them up to the bench. They would go back to his chambers. They would fight about things. He would be like, "Okay, don't do it again." Like, uh, the, I can't remember the exact quote, but there's one part, like end of a chapter in in the Leland Hale book where he's like, "And the judge finally lost all control over the trial. <laughs> like, oh it was nuts." um and although um there was never any solid evidence of this whole drug angle right other than some testimony from some jailhouse snitches but it it kept it kept coming up in different ways so in the end the eyewitness testimony of course was key and few more so than that of larry demmer larry was terrified to testify at trial which he said had caused him to develop a dependence on valium uh oh, si- since then yeah. Larry was the eyewitness that I mentioned at the beginning, who said that he had seen that shadowy figure go on to and off of the investor and heard the scream. And he claims also that he recognized John Peel as that silhouetted figure. Now, not by seeing his face, but just by recognizing his shape, his mannerisms. Yeah, you, you, you can see how Philip Widener would, like, pick this apart on, you know... Uh, um, when, when uh, Larry Demmer was up on the on the stand, um, uh, now John P or um, Larry Demmer rather also claimed to have clearly seen John walking along the dock with a rifle in his hand. And that that was through the whole trial, the, the one and most definitive you know time someone was like, "I am positive, it was John Peel.
1: You said there were they were burned beyond recognition. Was there any gunshot wounds? Do they...
0: Yes. there were, oh. That's a good question. There were some that, that did have visible gunshot wounds because um, there, there were some bodies that were in a part of the ship that didn't get burned as, as much. Okay. So they do know that. And they recovered um, some shells as well. But they were never able to... That's a good question. They were never able to clearly establish what the gun was. They think it was okay. a 22 caliber rifle. And they think that it was the gun that Mark had on the ship because he kept a gun on the ship, but they don't know that for sure they don't they don't know for sure what gun it was um so anyway um the uh, uh defense attorney Widener, also sought to discredit Larry Demmer because of his dependence on valium and and uh, just generally tried to like you know paint him as unbelievable um Most of the other eyewitnesses, all of the other eyewitnesses were not as sure. You know that it was John Peel. Um, they would say a lot of things like, "Well, it re- he it definitely looks like him. Like he looks like him."
1: It was okay, but they
0: never said like, "Yes, that is the man." Um, crucially, Sue Domonoski, the woman who spoke to the skiff operator, again, she was like that. She was like she was pretty sure it was John Peel, but she was never willing to make that clear, positive identification.
1: And you said only one person at one time was really like, sure.
0: Right, exactly. And that was Larry Demert saying, you know, I saw John Peel. I was, you know, this far away from him. He was standing under a light. I was looking through the porthole. I saw him on the dock with a gun in his hand, you know, just after the killings happened. But again, that's, do you believe Larry Demert or not? That's, I mean, this whole case kind of comes down to, do you believe Larry Demmert or not? Um, so the defense's main strategy, other than discrediting him and the other prosecution witnesses, was to establish that John Peel had a solid, solid alibi, not the right. one he had initially told the police. That one was a lie. He admitted that. Oh. But he said the only reason, according to Widener, that John Peel had lied about that was that his actual alibi was that he was selling someone wheat at the time, which he didn't okay. want to admit to the police. Um, furthermore, the defense produced witnesses that said um, that they saw John at a bank just after the fire started. And there was also a call that John had made um, at a time that the defense um, uh, claims w- it means it would have been impossible for him to have been the one who set the fire and therefore the one who was the killer, right? Because again, the fire happened two days after the killings happened. As with everything, the timelines were not clear. Um, if you believe the defense, then yes, it was impossible. It's this impossibility defense, right? He could not have been there. But the the prosecution says, well, but the timeline could have been this, and this person might have been mistaken. So anyway,
1: yeah, it seems like it all tends to fall apart when it comes to the eyewitnesses. Right, like it's. That's why the timeline seems so, like, or if this person was wrong, then it could be this.
0: Exactly. And, um, there was also this whole, um, sort of issue around, uh, quote-unquote Jim Robinson, the owner of the, uh, gas station that I had mentioned earlier. now I say quote-unquote because, um, it became clear that Jim Robinson was not Jim Robinson. That was a pseudonym. That, um... In fact, the man claiming to be Jim Robinson was a different person who had changed his name to escape justice in Arizona, where he had skipped out on a work camp while serving a sentence for firebombing a car several years earlier. After closing statements, um, and and so that was just another crazy thing that happened during the trial, right? So anyway, after those eight months had elapsed, right, we're at the closing statements, even those spanned a few days just for the closing statements, the jury finally began deliberating on August 23rd of 1986, nearly four years after the crimes had occurred. Uh, crimes had occurred. On the sixth day of deliberation, the jury advised the judge that they were at an impasse. Um, after speaking with the four person, the judge said, yes, I agree, you're not going to be able to come to a decision, and declared a mistrial. Dismissed the jury. Obviously, no one was satisfied with this, right? The state, um, you know, not the the defense, no one, right? But after some prevaricating and, um, you know, some uh, political maneuverings, the state decided to pursue a second trial. After it was discovered that um, defense counsel Widener had been Dating one of the law clerks of the oh. first judge,
1: oh, there the prosecution. It is. mistrial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well,
0: the mistrial had already happened, but what that um, what happened because of that was the prosecution successfully got another judge to say that the original judge was now disqualified, and they had to get another judge to see to hear the case, and they actually moved to a new venue as well. I think the first trial was in Ketchikan, and the second trial was in Juneau.
1: This is wild.
0: Yeah, it's a crazy story. So, the second trial was no less contentious than the first, but it was a lot shorter. This was partly because the prosecution streamlined their case. Um, They called fewer witnesses, um, they had fewer exhibits, things of that nature. But it's also because the defense did not call any witnesses, when the prosecution mm-hmm. was done with their case, um, Philip Widener simply stated, quote, based upon the state of the evidence and the burden of proof, the defendant rests his case, close quote. Just felt like we don't even need to do anything. Um, at 3.34 p.m. on the fourth day of deliberations for the second trial, the jury came back with a unanimous verdict. And about an hour later, the world would learn that John Peel had been acquitted on all counts, found not guilty. There's
1: just too much doubt.
0: Yeah. There was, in the minds of these people, there there simply was reasonable doubt, you know. Widener's um, instinct, the, the defense attorney's instinct, that the prosecution had not proved their case was correct. In the minds of, you know, the the, the jury, they had simply not proven their case against like this so person.
1: so many questions.
0: And, you know, some of the jurors say... My instinct was he was guilty, but the judge told us you, you're not allowed to go on your instinct. You, I mean, ha- you have to consider the evidence.
1: Exactly. And does
0: the evidence, as it's presented, prove it beyond a reasonable doubt? That's the only thing you can consider. Right. And they said, when you really looked at it, no. Right. It, it just didn't.
1: I've seen 12 angry men. I know.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> but, it, but it wasn't even that in this case. You know, they say that it started out like eight to four, not guilty, and then they convinced the other people. Um, so, yeah, um, the, the jurors just weren't, and, and, yeah, I think especially to convict him for, like, this super heinous crime for which you're going to go to, to jail for the rest of your life. you can't, you know, yeah. yeah. If
1: it's gonna, if it's something like that, you gotta be sure.
0: And it was all just circumstantial, and some of it, like I said, like, for, and for the second trial, Mary and Henry actually just flat out admitted, like, we do not know what what the uh, motive was. Like, we are not going to establish motive, which obviously hurts your case. If you have to just come out flatly and say like one of the three pillars of like, you know, that everyone knows of, of how to prove a case, like we're just going to ignore one of them. And then the other two were like only sort of, you know, giving you evidence to, to substantiate. Um, Obviously, some victims' families remained and remain convinced that John was the true killer, but some others don't. There were actually a couple that met with John Peel many, many years later and were convinced that he was not the killer after speaking to him. Prosecuting attorney Mary Ann Henry, of course, remained until, you know, the day of her death, fervently convinced that the jury got it wrong. Um, this single-minded focus on John Peel... Um, you know, from, from beginning to way after the end, um, may also have hurt the prosecutor's case, as some jurors also said that they were convinced by the defense's argument that investigators simply had blinders on from the start. And and especially, there, I think there was a tape of some of the um, initial, um, um, what do you call it, um, when they, t- when, when they took when the yeah interviews or whatever you know in- the interrogation exactly with John Peel and they listened to that and they said that for some of them that's what convinced them they listened to it and they said no they're just trying to bully him into con- into confessing like he I I believe huh. him I believe that he when he said, said he's not guilty so yeah they they just weren't they just didn't get rid of the doubt there was still too much doubt so um, as sort of a pr- post log the vigorous defense of uh, John from Philip Widener continued after the acquittal, even. He continued to represent John and attempted to pry a $177 million restitution from the state of Alaska. Oh. Um, I think $100 million of it was specifically for John. Um, in the end, John would get $900,000 um, from the state of Alaska as, as restitution for, you know whatever for all of this um 15 years after the crimes in in the fall of 1997 and that was sort of the end of it and it was truly the end of it because the state of Alaska officially closed the case with the theory that John Peel was indeed the killer and was just not found guilty of the wow. crime wow yeah and 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 so it's, i mean widener definitely to to him like henry you know Uh, these some of these other people to him it was actually misconduct that they would go before you know the public and say like well the jury got it wrong we still think he's guilty i mean is that really what we want prosecutors to be doing it it does seem like no
1: is that is that considered misconduct like really
0: Mm, i don't think so not actionable but i mean i think you could consider it inappropriate
1: that makes sense
0: Um, the state of Alaska, like I said, officially closed the case. Of course, John Peel continues to profess his innocence and the hope that the true killer will be found so that he can be fully vindicated. Of course, we don't know. Um, here at Mystery Murdery Thingy, we don't take a position on our mysteries. We talked about doing that. We, we, when we were first formulating the pod, we talked about doing that. But, uh, that is the point. We, we embrace the mystery. And I think this one is, it's very mysterious. I certainly, if I were on that jury... I have a pretty hard time convicting him as well, I think
1: dude that was rough,
0: yeah, that's a crazy one i mean when when they say it's you know the you know sort of most heinous Alaska's worst unsolved mass murder, as it says here on this on the book, right so my sources um to get to that, of course, what happened in Craig, the book by Leland e Hale um also um from 2018. Also, Johnny Dodd and Adam Carlson at People, Megan Heinz at In Touch, and the Craig Alaska page on Wikipedia.
1: Wikipedia!
0: Wikipedia!
1: Okay. And uh, that's
0: my story for this two weeks. And oh. I think that's going to be the end of my Alaska murder in Alaska. I'll find, find something else to do next time. Chloe? <laughs> uh, Chloe? Over to you.
1: So, I am... This is my... This is part one of two of the murder of Athalia Ponzel Lindsay. No, it's not Athalia. It's Athalia. Sorry, I'm learning. Okay. So, Athalia Ponzel Lindsay. She was born in Toledo, Ohio. Um,. So she was she was raised by wealthy parents in the Isle of Pines, Cuba in 1917. So she was somebody who grew up wealthy, um was always living a uh, a luxurious lifestyle. And I just want to point out this is a a very brutal murder, murder, quite yeah. brutal. A crime of passion, I would say.
0: This episode is not for the faint
1: of heart. Not for the faint of heart. So she um was raised in, in the Isle of Pines, Cuba, uh, later moved with her family to Jacksonville, Florida. So she grew up, she was always a star, right? She was always doing acting. She was, um, active in, in beauty, in in beauty pageants. After high school, she ended up moving to New York City with her sister and adopted this stage name, Ponzel, Ponzel. And so her and her sister were actually pretty successful, um, Athalia became a model. She was she um was a model for a lot of like name brand stuff. She promoted shampoo, toothpaste, was in a lot of commercials. Um she was a Chevy girl. Oh really? Um she was even on on uh in a musical comedy that ran on Broadway for a few weeks in 1942 and she was also a hostess or like I think she was yeah, I think she was the hostess on a game show, a game show called "Winner Takes All."
0: Oh, that's cool. Have you
1: heard of that? No. I, I never have. But she was um, getting her money, and she was gorgeous, beautiful, tall, bombshell, blonde, absolutely beautiful. She um, even dated Joseph Kennedy Jr. at one point. I think they were engaged at one point, but I'm not sure. There are some conflicting answers about that. But she was the kind of of a star that had points in, in gossip columns. Like, people were like, Athalia Ponzel is currently dating, you right. know, um, Joseph Kennedy Jr., and she it's, stars in like, blah, um, blah, blah, blah. And like.
0: I, was, I saw a, a people, I don't remember who it was, it was like some celebrity getting married. And then it was like, I don't remember why I clicked on it, but the beginning of it was like the guests at the wedding enjoyed this dish and this dish. And, like, this... And it it was, like, really funny, but... Yeah, (laughs) very mundane. Yeah.
1: Um, so... And, no, this is, uh... 50s, 60s, 70s, right? Once you hit 30 plus, your career as a model kind of yoinks. It's different nowadays, I'd say. Um... But people were very, still are, it's it's a very judgmental business. It's right. difficult to stay relevant in, especially during that time period.
0: They're all l- looking for the new it girl. Right. You know, you're not the new it girl if you've been around for 10 years. Yeah,
1: she's, she also had a kind of reputation as the, like, uh, she was, you know, pretty bratty, uh, the bitch of New York, um she lost a lot of money at one point burned a lot of opportunities and one of my sources was city confidential and i mean it was fine but they were very it was a little misogynistic it yeah. was they were very it was annoying they were like they were like she got bitter and old and ugly and she <laughs> moved to florida and right. like I, it was annoying but she did move to a white stucco mansion in st augustine florida in 1972 and it was there that she she struggled to to fit in, right? So let's talk about St. Augustine, Florida. Uh, so this is early 70s, Southern Florida Beach Town, and it's actually one of the oldest in America. I I didn't know this. It was mm. founded in 1565 by a Spanish Admiral. It's the oldest, like like populated, like living city of European origin in the United States. Lots of tourists, lots of retirees. Uh, rich people everywhere and there was lots of old historic mansions and Spanish-style houses. It was kind of um, a mix of of rich people, politicians and socialites, and then on the other side was like the southern like Confederate flag waving you know guys in their Mm. trucks. So it was actually a pretty dangerous city during the 70s. Um, there was a lot of political tensions that went along with violence Mm. so um, Athalia began she did a little bit of real estate began selling some real estate eventually her her license lapsed she tried to go back to school but she never really got in the groove she um, was an activist she did dabble in politics she joined a lot of clubs she was actually in the DAR at one point the um, daughters of the American Revolution uh so at this okay so at this time in history like I kind of said before women they, they had their place you know especially in in the south especially in like you know the swamps of freaking southern Florida Lindsley um she was outspoken she did her own thing she was independent and people didn't really like that she could be she was described as intimidating. Uh, she was described as having an attitude. Right. As stirring, When you're
0: a man, you're assertive. Stirring, when you're a woman, you're like a bitch. Yeah.
1: Right. stirred the pot. Lots of people thought she was a troublemaker. And some people said that she earned her own death. There was... The reaction of the people to her death was... And this is from, like, both City Confidential and the book. And I don't know... It's it's pretty a, subject, a subjective thing, you know. Um, but there were definitely people out there who were like didn't care like mm-hmm. she got what was coming stuff like that um but once you hear what happened that shit makes me sick like nobody deserves to right. be murdered right
0: yeah to be clear no human being deserves to be clear to die.
1: <laughs> just um, to be clear so she actually um was living with her sick mother who she was taking care of margarita fetter she was her caretaker 24 hours a day seven days a week um Margarita was very elderly, and she even had trouble just, like, getting dressed and, like, going to the bathroom and stuff like that. Um, so she did take care of her until her mother passed. She met James Jinks Lindsley in 1973. So, James Lindsley was the former mayor, uh, but his friends described him as a chain smoker who drank too much. (laughs) He had been married twice before to the same woman named Lillian, who was a dancer, uh their son died in uh their son Danny died in a motorcycle accident in 1966 and then his wife Lily died in a car accident in 71 oh my God. so that's kind of where he earned his nickname Jinx oh okay um and that was on New Year's Day 71 and James was actually at the wheel um hmm. James and Athalia married only after a few months they didn't know each other that long before they tied the knot but they didn't get along that well. there were lots of marital difficulties. um Athalia said to her sister Geraldine that James was quote a leech and a liar uh Geraldine was also the beneficiary the beneficiary to Athalia's will, and James would get nothing and he, like he didn't have even have the key to her house like they lived they actually lived separately. Hmm. Um, they had some trouble selling um athalia's Athalia's house, but they also didn't. They kind of clashed, they had, um, even if they did live together, it probably would not have gone well. Yeah. And furthermore, they both had some pretty recent difficulties in their life, like Athalia's mother died a little bit after the wedding, James had lost the campaign to the county commissioner, and he hadn't lost in decades, so he was kind of down on his luck. And Athalia hadn't worked full-time in years, and James was, at that point, he, like, lost a resource of of income, so they consolidated their income. And, like I said, they were both, did some, they were both realtors, but the 70s were a really bad time for real estate. Right. Um, So there wasn't much income coming there, either. Her sister, Geraldine, said that she didn't talk much about difficulties, actually, with Lindsley. Um, And it was clear that they did love each other. She was with them every day, skipped work once a week to spend time together. Um, but like I said, James and Athalia did live separately. Uh, he lived by the water, and she lived on Marine Street. And they fought about property and possessions, and very lots of bickering. So let's talk about the day of the murder. Picture it, January twenty third, nineteen seventy four, St. Augustine, Florida.
0: He stole my thing. You said my my thing that I stole from uh, Sophia. Sophia. Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> picture it. <laughs> Sicily. Okay. Natalia Panza Lindsay is found dead on her front porch by her neighbors the McCormick's. Oh my god. She was nearly decapitated. <gasps> she was hacked to death in broad daylight. What? Blood everywhere. Out all over the the porch on the walls. She was only wearing one shoe. Her skirt was hiked up. She had severed fingers, defense wounds. She died quickly. According to the the autopsy, her uh, carotid artery was sliced open, severed, bled out. Eventually a crowd formed. Patty Stanford, a neighbor, heard the screams. She was, she she thought someone got run over because Marine Street was actually like a pretty busy thoroughfare. Um, Her daughter, Patricia, thought it was kids playing around. And once police arrived on the scene, Sergeant Dominic Nicklow, he was one of the many officers on the scene. He, um, along with, oh, what is his name? Deputy Sheriff. I'll get his names in here somewhere. Um, Took over the case. The one of the neighbors called James and was like, hey, you need to get over here right now. Um, And the police botched the investigation. They Messed up the crime scene for sure. The murder weapon wasn't found at the scene. Um, it, I mean, it wasn't at the scene, but it wasn't found at the scene. Um, it was described as a quote, a crime of just pure hate. People were walking through the yard, climbing over the hedges. Crime scene totally destroyed. There were people were walking through the house, bloody footprints. What? Um, police. A the classic. police officer ordered an ambulance attendant to wash away the blood. <gasps> yeah. What?
0: How many times? How many fucking times? And sometimes it's very intentional, of course, but how many times have we seen an investigation where they... And it's a mystery because... Come on!
1: Yeah. Secure the crime scene. And then we don't know, and we don't know if, like, if it was intentional or not.
0: True. I mean, when the incompetence gets to that level, where you're literally washing away the evidence immediately after you discover the crime, like, that's pretty, you know...
1: All three suspects were involved with the city. One was oh, a really? police officer. So. Oh,
0: okay.
1: And we never know. Uh, Richard O. Watson, who eventually became the prosecutor, he commented, he said he was pissed about how the police were handling the case. It was This was an extreme, this was extreme. It is extreme, period. Mm-hmm. But it was also extreme for the town, right? At that time, they didn't even have their own crime scene unit. Mm. Um, and they had to call over to Jacksonville. And there was one eyewitness who came forward, uh, 18-year-old Locke McCormick, and he was one of the neighbors. So he described hearing loud, like, snapping sounds. He described it as, like, clapping noises. He saw a white man wearing a white dress shirt and dark slacks, brown-gray hair, and he could. He was, like, I, I believe he was upstairs, and he, they're, like, neighbors, like, looking out the window, and he could see, like, his arm moving up and down. And allegedly, he shouted to his mother, quote, Mr. Stanford is hitting Mrs. Ponzel, unquote. Allegedly. So let's talk about our main man. No, fuck Alan Stanford. Let's talk about Alan Stanford. He was the he was neighbor, uh, county manager, and he showed up around 7 p.m. So when, you know, there's a big crowd, he's like what's going on? When his neighbors said, you know, um if is dead, he says he says was she shot or was she cut? <laughs> Jesus. I know. Uh and like I said, um Locke McCormick said it was Mr. Stanford who was hitting Mrs. Ponzell. Walter Ar- Arnold, a defense attorney, said the cops looked at one suspect and no one else. Uh but that's, nah, I I, dis- I personally disagree with that. Uh, police records do prove this false. There was actually plenty of follow-up and, and documentation. So it's kind of interesting when I hmm. was listening to the book. They did a lot of interviews, a lot of follow-ups. They went really deep. But they really fucked up the crimes. Yeah, It was, and I think actually the St. John's, County Sheriff's Office also took over the investigation, um, so maybe there was more professionalism mm. there. But and sometimes um,
0: it can also be like the the tension between two investigating agencies when they're trying to decide who has, you know, the right of way. Right? Yeah. And s- sometimes evidence can be, or you know, different things can happen in that tension. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, Sergeant Dominic Nicolo talked about how, you know, they had to work together. There was no choice. They had to work together. Um, So, you know, obviously there was a lot of error, um, but they did get a lot of things right. There were over a thousand pages of interviews and notes and depositions and evidence. Uh, Like I said, St. John's County Sheriff's Office showed up. They showed up around 8 o'clock that night to take over the investigation. So... Here, here, Uh, County Sheriff Dudley Garrett launched street-by-street sweep of the city, interviewed hundreds of people, documented everything. He believed the crime could not happen without bothering others nearby. Uh, She was found pretty quickly. And he determined that the murder weapon was a machete because of the depth of the cuts. These cuts were clean and they were long. Um... They started combing through records and they looked at anyone who was arrested with a machete in their possession. Note, and I didn't know that this, I was like, a machete? Oh, you're going to find the person? It's a fucking machete. No, this is Florida. Lots of people Mm. had machetes for trimming palm fronds and vines and bushes. It was a thing. And rumors, they even even investigated rumors. Um, The most popular one being that It was James Lindsley, and he did it in a drunken rage. Uh, James Lindsley did have a violent temper, and people really thought that he was capable of killing her. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they didn't have the greatest relationship. And eventually, there was an old machete found in the back of his truck as well. So that day, the timeline of that day. So Athalia went out to eat with James. Um, They were planning on celebrating the Chinese New Year that day they went shopping together um and then they made plans to meet up again later for dinner athalia went home to feed the dogs and we'll talk about her zoo i mean it's not a zoo but she had i think she had two goats like seven dogs and there was a blue jay that she was like nursing back to health Uh. um so she went out to to take care of all of that and Thalia was seen leaving James's real estate office that day around 5:35 p.m. to go home to feed her dogs and the bird. The plan was to lock up, uh, put a light on in the house to make it seem like someone was home, and head over to James's place. So, James's alibi: he, meanwhile, was at his office, or he, yeah, he left his office. Um, two eyewitnesses confirmed seeing him leave. He actually spoke to some people before. He like went over. Cough drops, the drugstore. Spoke to some people. His car was seen there, and then he went to go get some milk. Then he um, arrived home around six o'clock. The um, his neighbor also confirmed that uh, James arrived between six and six thirty. There is about fifteen to twenty five minutes unaccounted for, but it's kind of a stretch, though, to say he like went over, killed his wife, and came back in that time. And he did take a polygraph test, and he passed. But that doesn't really mean anything. Um, yeah. his... I didn't even
0: mention polygraph in mine because it's so fucking meaningless. It doesn't even... Yeah.
1: His stories never varied. Uh, furthermore, so many witnesses saw him that they were... And they were all unrelated people that it, like, didn't make sense for, like, them to, like, conspire together to create an alibi. And all in all, the police weren't looking at the husband. Uh, Frank Upchurch Jr. was hired to provide def- defense for another suspect this one more likely and his story kept changing this is our this is county manager alan griffith stanford jr (gasps) athalia had an ongoing feud and Mm. when i say feud a fucking feud and i'm we're getting into this okay um he had threatened her life and there was there was the, the trail of blood that was found starting at the front porch where her body lay ended in the Stanford's backyard. Hmm. Um, he also borrowed a machete from the town, but he never returned it. And and he was identified by Locke McCormick, um, February fifteenth, nineteen seventy four. A little little less than a month later, there was a blood-stained plastic bag that was discovered in a swamp near a shipyard. The bag had a watch, a machete, and a pair of blood-soaked trousers in it. The blood on the clothes matched Athalia, Thalia, and the clothes allegedly belonged to Alan Stanford. The machete was indeed property of the St. Augustine Road and Highway Maintenance, where Stanford actually borrowed materials often. And, you know, he's the county engineer, you know? Uh, the, The department had a certain paint, like, on... On that they used on their machetes to identify them. That that's like their property, and that's how they knew that it belonged to the town. Hmm. But why her neighbor? Why Alan Stanford? So let's talk about this dispute. It began with Athalia's seven barking dogs howling at all hours of the day and all hours of the night note that Marine street where she lived was a loud place anyway like the hospital was right down the street there were you know ambulances in and out uh they li- you know the main street they lived on was busy thoroughfare cars all the time there weren't any bushes in between the houses the houses were pretty close together Athalia was always the center of gossip um even then neighbors joked about her all the time uh mccormick and uh stanford the two neighbors filed a formal complaint in October of 1972. Note that they that only their side of the story was documented, and they portrayed her as a crazed neighbor who disturbed the peace. She eventually was fined $50, but she never showed up in court. Um, she was, she, she ended up, um, in the end, she ended up boarding four of her seven dogs, but the neighbors were still annoyed. Rosemary McCormick uh, initiated a warrant for Athalia's arrest in April of 1973 for not going to court. And that was three days before her mother died. Uh, and Patty Stanford wrote a long detailed letter to, um, the police department instead. Athalia tried to, so Athalia went to the husbands. She just, she's decided to discredit the husbands, which was weird because it was like the wives who were home all day and like complaining. Definitely, there was definitely more behind the dispute between Alan Stanford and Athalia. So, it's also possible that Athalia was unwell. She had been she had been taking care for elderly ed- elderly mother for years. A mm-hmm. uh, friend said she looked gaunt in pictures. She was distraught and she was nervous the day of her death. According to James, Athalia really had to go to the bathroom and was in like such a hurry that she left her keys in the door and her groceries on the floor. Geraldine found a tampon and a paper bag in the bathroom trash, which was weird because Athalia was fifty six. Um, possible postmenopausal breakthrough bleeding—that's what that could mean, mm. which is very serious. That's like a sign of like um, not ov ovar- is it ovarian cancer or cancer? Okay, cancer. Okay. Um, Very—it's—it's it's very serious. So, yeah. So there was a lot of changes in her life. You know, she moved to a new place. She got married. Her mother died. Uh, all kinds of stuff. So this dispute went on when Athalia hired someone to cut down a pecan tree between her house and the Stanford's house, uh, then planted 10-foot-high bamboo on the corner of their driveway, uh, and Patty got the city to remove it as a visual obstruction. Athalia wrote a letter to the commanding officer of the National Guard talking about Colonel McCormick, and no one knows what the letter said, but it couldn't have been, a, like, a compliment, you know? Um, weird. And she then she became focusing on Alan Stanford. So and this is wild. She went to the news office of the Saint Augustine Record, uh, got one of the people there to help her dig up records about Alan, but like the rep there like declined. And so she left. She was pissed. But eventually she did find plenty of information about Mr. Stanford. She started rumors about him, said that he was getting um or that he was using money for the county for, like, personal projects, Um, and eventually a prosecutor cleared Alan of that charge. But Alan Stanford wasn't an innocent dude. He was fire-happy. He liked to... He liked firing people. 155% employee turnover. uh, (laughs) Didn't listen to his employees. Lots of complaints um, from the workers. They worked seven days a week, didn't get paid overtime, and... People talked about this a lot the 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 roads in the county were absolutely terrible potholes mm. um the book talked about like and it really really got into the dispute. The dispute goes pretty deep. I'm not gonna get into the details, but um, the roads were like dangerous mm. and people complained, and Ellen was really wasn't doing much about it wasn't on his radar Athalia showed up at county meetings which were open to the public she showed up at them all the time Uh and she was loud and she was ready to fight and people hated it um in in city confidential um the one commissioner was like you know like she she wasn't Uh, Some of the stuff she said, like, Alan Alan definitely deserved it. I'd probably let her go on for about ten minutes before I'd cut her off. (laughs) Oh,
0: my God. Um,
1: Yeah. He was like, you know, it was crazy, but, like, Alan definitely deserved some of the stuff that she was (laughs) saying. Like, (laughs) (laughs) um, So, yeah, she called out his credentials, noted his ridiculously high salary, which is true. He got a raise, like, way higher than everybody else. And she called him out on it. She called him out, um all the time, you know, a true bad bitch. She criticized where taxpayer dollars went, like, you know, complained about the streets. Uh, Citizens complained about Alan as well. Athalia was at these meetings all the time. Like I said, she wanted Alan fired. She wanted him out. Um, Stanford fought back. He called Athalia a vicious, evil woman woman and threatened to fix her. Uh, Geraldine said that Athalia told her that Stanford actually did threaten to kill her. James, the husband, was also suspicious about Alan. He also had a rep for having a temper. Athalia said that Alan put sugar in her gas tank one time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and James confronted him about it. Like, she was out of town, and he poured fucking sugar in her gas tank. Like, how Jeez. petty is that? Yeah. Um, so, the day of the death, January 23rd, 1974, 4.15pm. Alan Stanford got two visitors from the Florida Department of Professional and Occupational Regulations, these investigators were from the Florida State Board. Athalia had sent a handwritten letter to the director of the board one year prior, talking about Stanford signing documents as the county engineer, which he was not. He failed the test. So um, the book kind of goes into this as well. Stanford's father was a was an engineer, and he tried to follow his footsteps failed the test um uh, was was planning on retaking it but never did but he was out here signing documents pretending to be a civil engineer which is like super illegal um he he explained to the investigators like there was there were ongoings between him and athalia like eh, you know this is this is a thing that's been going on um investigators from the board noted that alan wasn't like super angry or acted like he was going to get revenge he was almost like too cool for the situation so mm. like imagine like some high up execs come in and is like look this woman wrote us a letter about you like signing documents illegally like what's going on here so like you have especially if it's someone you've been having a feud with you'd be like what right. f- it, Sorry? Like she what like uh, it, it, You'd think it would ins- inspire some, some rage, but, but I mean, we don't, we don't know. The state investigators planned on interviewing Athalia the next day, but, you know, that night, yeah. she was killed. Ironically, on the day of her death, the dogs were locked in the garage, and the police didn't even notice them until they hmm. searched the garage. Um, so, eventually, uh, Ellen Stanford was arrested for the murder of Athelia ponzo lindsay lindsley but we will get into the trial and its insanity in part two
0: cool sounds good
1: yay this was very that crazy was already short right Ooh. no no not at all i guess i could have done it no i could have done it in one there's a lot about the trial and then spoiler alert there is a second attack and we'll get into oh. that as well okay yeah
0: well, uh, thanks for listening, y'all. Thank
1: you for listening. Yeah. Mario, do you have any weird shit in the news?
0: Not, re- No, not really.
1: I but I did want to talk about the 39 bodies yeah. that were found in a truck in Essex. <sighs> What the fuck? I, I did know. retweet it. Everybody, go check out the story if you haven't heard of it already. I
0: read most of the story.
1: Um, this guy was from Northern Ireland, but they said that the bodies were transferred from Bulgaria. Well,
0: the right. It's unclear. The lorry was registered in Bulgaria, okay. but they don't know if it was actually at, like coming from Bulgaria directly. They have, I'm, um, but uh, I think they're pretty sure that it uh, that it did. But yeah, it's not clear like what actually happened. But the guy was arrested on suspicion of murder,
1: so... 39. It's
0: insane.
1: Um, so my sources were the uh, Wikipedia page, Athalia, Ponzel, Lindsley, which doesn't have a lot. Like, I feel like I could write up that Wikipedia page. There's a lot out there about it. it. I was surprised. Um... The book by Elizabeth Randall, Murder in St. Augustine, The Mysterious Death of Athelia Ponzo Lindsley, and uh, I think it was season three, episode five of City Confidential. Um, I think it was called The Politician and the Socialite or something like that.
0: S- something super cliche.
1: Something cliche.
0: Yeah, of course. gutsy. But it. uh, Wild. Yeah.
1: Wild. Absolutely Pretty Crazy. Wild.
0: So yeah, um follow our Insta, Instagram,
1: Facebook, Twitter, um Mario
0: Text 30 Thank you tweeter. guys
1: so much for listening. Yeah, thank we y'all. cherish y'all. We are trying to bring cherish. some better quality episodes. Right. Um, we're doing I've well, definitely been reading a lot more books.
0: Exactly. Like see, I read a book for this episode. You're you're listening to an audiobook. It's this it's what it's about.
1: Lots of long-form articles. Right. And I've got so much content now that I Reached out to the Reddit community. God yes. bless
0: the the wonderful resource. I was like, "Does anybody
1: where y'all where y'all get your long form articles for mystery?" Everyone was like, "Here you go."
0: <laughs> Noise. Bam. Okay. And
1: hint, hint. Oh, what? I did ask for a long form article on the 1991 yogurt shop murders in Austin, right. Texas. So been stay tuned for
0: long. Been coming as a topic. I think that's one we've been talking about since before we started doing that one.
1: Oh, that one is so sad. Yeah. It is brutal, it is bizarre, it is a true cold, cold case. Anyway. Anyway. Anyway! Bye. Bye! Bye!